0: Well, I'm Jack. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, welcome to Second Sunday of Advent. It's beautiful. I want to thank everyone. I know like, Cashley, but who, I don't know who else helped you, Cashley. Like a Holly, Kate, Suzanne. Thank you for setting this up. Let's give them a round of applause. Uh, don't take the set as yet. We need them, but maybe after. Maybe maybe after Advent's over. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But or we'll don't touch them. (laughs) Uh, We're in a new series, if you were at Green Lake last week, where we were gathering uh, called Coming to Our Senses. And it's a theme in Advent rooted in this conviction that our faith was never meant to just be a a mental exercise, which is I think how a lot of us have been taught to come to faith. We go to Bible study, we talk about the Bible, we do those kinds of things. Uh, It's meant to be this thing that involves our whole body. So here's how Jesus puts it. When he's asked what the greatest commandment is, do you remember what he replies? That we'd love the Lord. This is Luke 10 love the Lord with all of our passion, our prayer, our muscle, and our intelligence. But passion and prayer and muscle, that involves your body body, soul, and spirit, we might say, your whole self. So this having, we're engaging our whole selves in the story of salvation as it comes to us in the baby Jesus. And we're invited each week to just kind of take hold of God in that way with a different sense. And so sight, touch, taste, uh, ears. We'll look at each of those throughout this next couple weeks. And so today we're on taste. Uh, But before we taste, as the psalm says, taste and see the Lord's good, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into God's word. God, thank you that you invite us to a whole body experience of your son, Jesus. Uh, That though he came to earth thousands of years ago now, and we, none of us in the room, got to actually hold him at his birth. We can, through your spirit and the word given to us, come to an understanding of him that is physical, that is real, that is tangible. So we pray that that would happen for us this morning, God, that as we open your word together as a community, you'd shape us, form us, that you'd open our hearts to new revelation, and indeed, God, that we'd encounter you. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So we're on taste, and sort of as a way to introduce this, we talk about this a lot at Bethany, this thing I want to introduce to you, not just at Christmas, but not usually at Christmas, this idea of the, in, the reality of the indwelling Christ. So you know this verse from Colossians 1, 26 and 27. Most of us have heard this before at Bethany. This is the mystery that's been kept dark for a long time. There's John 1, but now it's open. Here's the mystery in a nutshell. Christ is in you, and he's the hope of glory. We love that, right? We preach that. But there's one problem with it, right? And I hear this all the time when I preach this. The most common response I get is not awesome. It's, what does that mean? (laughs) Like, how would that look? Christ in me? Like, seriously? Are you kidding? So people, I think, in that reaction, really want Jesus. You want Jesus in your lives. I I think a lot of you are nodding, yes, I want Jesus in my lives. But you, you don't know how to get that. You don't know how that looks. You have no idea where to begin that journey. Like to have a tangible experience of Christ, it seems like the stuff of either the super super spiritual, like the mystics out there, or the the kind of crazy, like those people who are just kind of a little out there. How many are one or the other of those? There's none of you. Okay, good. There's a couple of crazies in the room. <laughs> yeah. So or spiritual types. That's good. So how might Jesus indwell in my life? That's, it's a good question, right? It's one, I'll just be honest, I continually wrestle with. And I've wrestled with for many years. So I was talking to our senior pastor, Richard, about this this week and getting ready to preach this sermon. And you know what he reminded me of as we were partaking of my favorite coffee from Slate Coffee and his favorite cho- chocolate from like Whole Foods or something? I don't know. He reminded me of the beauty of appetite. Uh, so we've all been given the gift of an appetite. That's why you eat, Actually. You eat because you have an appetite, or that's why you should eat. Some of us eat for other reasons. We eat because we get hungry, and not just hungry, like in our raw need for calories, though that's important. Hunger in the sense that Richard was articulating that in that coffee and that chocolate, this appetite to enjoy an amazing gift, right? To taste in that coffee blueberries. (laughs) Like some of you are like, yeah, right. (laughs) They say that, but it's not true. And so the key to experiencing Christ in your life is hunger. That's what I'm trying to say. God's given you a spiritual appetite. He's given you one. Uh, a sort of hunger for Christ in your heart, in your life, that leads you to taking Jesus in, allowing him to circulate through you, and, and then ultimately explode into your lives and cause your relationships and your calling and uh, your character to, to shift and change, Okay. Which is precisely why Jesus says here in John 6 that the only way for us with a hunger for Christ, if that's you this morning, to experience his reality and his power indwelling you is to feast upon him. Here's how he puts it, kind of bluntly. My flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. And by eating my flesh and drinking my blood, you enter into me and I enter into you only, there's the qualifier, insofar as you eat and drink my flesh and my blood, (laughs) do you have life? That's the only way to live, the flesh and the blood of Jesus. And so he makes this astonishing declaration, which I'll just say is a a message that offends and confounds both then and now. It's confounding because we have no idea what that means. This? Is that what you're talking about, Jesus? Because I've done it for, I don't know how long you've been walking with Christ— 20 plus years, maybe some of you, may, many, many longer, you come here, yeah, it's still juice and crackers, Jack. Nothing's changed. So it's confounding, and it's also offensive. Because if you really get into the metaphor, he's inviting you to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And if that's repulsive. That's really repulsive, if you think about it. And it's no wonder if you read John 6, verse 66, <laughs> I'm not kidding here, that many of his disciples at this moment say to Jesus, we've just lost our appetites. We'd rather have the chocolate and the coffee, Jesus, because that is disgusting. And we do the same. I'll just be honest. We, you know, you're back from the retreat or that so-called spiritual high. You had the aha moment. Or it's that time of year again for New Year's resolutions. Some of you are ramping up for that. Um, or you hear some great sermon, you sing a new song, your heart opens up in a new way, right? And you invite Jesus in. And then he reveals it's not just going to be chocolate and coffee, it's going to be flesh and blood. And you get inside his story, you see this dead person on a cross. Uh, you see his whole story, and what do you do? Just like the disciples, you fall, you fall off, you fall away it's too hard, Jesus. I would rather set, settle for personal prosperity and comfort, comfort foods. That's what I really want, Jesus. Uh, I don't want the hard life. Okay, I'll settle for the easy stuff. Which those aren't bad things. Prosperity, peace. Those are good. we sing about it in Christmas. It's good stuff. But that's not what Jesus is inviting us toward. That's the key. Not just at Easter, which is when we talk about this stuff, but at Christmas as well. So I have a question for you this morning to set the table. Are you hungry? And not literally, I, I hope you eat breakfast. We, have, we don't have donuts today, so sorry. But are you hungry? Do you have an appetite for Jesus? Or have you lost your appetite? Have you lost it? Uh, I mean, does Jesus' invitation to feast on him, does that confound you, offend you, or excite you? Which is it? Because you can't be neutral. And do you want more of Jesus? That's kind of the question. He's asking us today at this second Sunday of Advent. And so for those that are hungry, well, I'll just say for those who are offended and confounded to you, all will invite you in. It's okay. He, he says, he offers a way in which we might bring him into our lives. Um, in this one little phrase in John 6, here's what he says. It's the phrase that runs through the narrative again and again and again. And you know it. I am the bread of life. That's it. That's the way you bring Jesus in. And so this morning, what I want to do is just unpack the phrase, and we're going to do it via three questions, okay? What is the bread? Where does this bread come from? And then how do we get it, okay? Three simple questions, what, where, and how? And then we'll come to the table. That's, that's the rest of the morning. You guys with me? All right, what is it? And we're going to learn what it is by just breaking the phrase down into its parts, bread and life, okay? We'll start with bread, and bread's simple, just quick and simple. It's that which can, be, which can be put in your mouth. You're going, to, some of you are, you're going to do this later. You're going to put the bread in your mouth. You, and metaphorically, you're bringing it into your life. That's what Jesus is saying here with this analogy. Think about it now. It, bread is more than just simply a means of satiating your hunger. You also bring in your life, what do you do with bread? Digest it. You're going to digest that bread when you take it in. It may just be a little morsel, but your body will digest that. And what Jesus is saying is, I have a life that has to be brought in. And and that life is meant, when you digest something, it's meant to be made part of you. Uh, And for that to do so, you have to eat it. You can't digest food that just sits on a table. You can't look at it and just enjoy it that way. And digestion is this basic biological process, right? I don't know if you've ever seen that cow at at, um, Cornell University with the stomach that they cut out. This is kind of gross now, I know. They cut the side of the cow out, and you can look in the stomach and see all the digestion happening. So that's what's happening inside of there. It's digesting the grass or whatever, breaking the food down, creating energy. And since that is a gross analogy, I think a more helpful one is the mechanical version of that. So how many of you drove here this morning? Good, a good number of you. Or How many of you just drive? You know, you know what I'm going to talk about here. Did you know your car is also digesting? It's digesting fuel if you use diesel, gas, if you don't. Uh, In other words, if the gas just sits in the tank of your car, it does nothing. Actually, it'll go bad. I learned this in our truck out back. If you let it sit too long, it'll go bad. But if if it circulates, if it'll explode, if it circulates through the engine, it'll explode into the car, into the system, creating energy, right, and powering your car to go where you need to go. That's digestion. That's all the car's doing. That's exactly what's happening when you take a piece of bread off this table. It's circulating through your veins, your, your, your body, your intestines, influencing, empowering you. That's what it's doing. Maybe not this bread. You're going to need more. But this is what Jesus is saying, the only valid picture of what it looks like to live as a Christian. <laughs> to, to take Jesus into your life. I have a life, he says, that has to be brought in. I have a life that must be brought in, one that must be digested, okay? But not just any life. Let's move to the second part of this, eternal life. So I'm the bread of eternal life is what he's saying. So we hear eternal life. Most of us think of heaven, like we're going to die someday, go up to heaven, right? That's not what he's talking about. Wipe Wipe the slate clean. The key to understanding what Jesus is talking about is actually understanding the Greek, and it's a really, and I to do this a lot, but the Greek word here that he's using, there's, t- there's two distinct Greek words for life, bios and zoe, okay? Now, bios, most of us can guess what that means, biological life, the life of plants and animals and organisms, okay? An analogy or a, a synonym for bios would just be existence, and we're all, take your pulse, you're existing right now. We're all existing, okay? Great. He doesn't use that word. He uses the word zoe. And it's this word for quality of life. We don't really have a good word for it in our language. The life of someone, say, throwing you a party. Like you had a birthday. Somebody threw you a great party. Uh, that's zoe. Or you're the life of the party. You go to the party and you're the one who just brings the, brings the energy up. You're zoe. Uh, we have distinctions in our language even. We, though we just use the one word. I'll give you an example. My son Elliot, we were we did a father son date about a year ago downtown, and uh, we got this car to go, went down to Seattle Center, uh, took the monorail over to Westlake, stayed at the Westin because there's a pool there. Have, how many of you done this? Stayed in the pool. This is definitely a good father son date or father daughter date or whatever. Stay in the pool. We close that pool down until like eleven o'clock. We're in this pool, and then we go up to our, our room, which is like on the top floor of the Westin. You know. And is Elizabeth here? I think, yeah, she's gonna hate me for this. We ordered room service at 11 o'clock at night ice cream, French fries, hamburgers, Coca Cola, and we ate it in bed. And we watched Alvin and the Chipmunks (laughs) till like 2 in the morning. It was awesome. So we fell asleep. I woke up, opened the drapes, and, you know, sunny day like this, looking out over downtown Seattle, all the buildings. And you know, Elliot, he, he leaned over and whispered in my ear, he said, Dad, guess what? This is living. And do you see what Elliot's saying? He, he caught the distinction in the word, and he, he hasn't even been to seminary yet. Uh, he was, and he wasn't saying that he was dead before that moment, right? He was not dead. He wasn't even saying that our lives were dead, though he might say they're kind of boring most of the time. But what he was saying is that that experience that we had that night in the Westin brought deep meaning to his life. It was exciting, Right? Uh, there was intimacy, like he got to be alone with his dad, and what he was saying is, "I want more of that, Dad. This is living. That's what he wanted." Uh, so, do you see the difference between what Jesus is saying here is Zoe and Bios? He he's articulating something very stunning to us. Um, he's saying, "I am the Zoe of life. I am, I am, I am the quality of your life. I am." He's inviting us to live, not to exist. Okay, And there's a big difference. Big difference. And all of us, all every one of us in the room is walking, young and old alike, cynical and faithful. We're all walking the knife edge between Bios and Zoe. We are. Every one of us is trying to seek joy, purpose, meaning. We are all trying to find it. And Jesus, he tips his hand toward that reality in John 6. He says in verse 27, If you if you were to read the whole chapter, he says, John 6, 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that brings eternal life. He acknowledges that there is food out there that spoils. And he's not talking about the food in your refrigerator, though it spoils too. Jesus acknowledges that there's bios that we all work for every day. And not just so we don't go hungry. It's good to to work. It's good to eat. You need to do those things. What he's saying is that every one of us is out to find our zoe. We're out to find our meaning a radical purpose in life. We are all looking for, every one of us. In our own minds, if you're like my son, Elliot, (laughs) all of us have particular ideas of how that should look. Like we have visions of living. We're striving for those visions every day, whether that's room service at the Westin or early retirement or an income level that you think is going to, you know, completely satisfy all your longings or owning your own home or a relationship, a certain kind of relationship. We all have something we're looking for to give us meaning, a place, a thing, an experience. And we look to that thing, and we say, that's it. If I can just get that in my life, I'm alive. Have you ever said that? I know I've said it a lot. And it could be any number of things. And the key is that we all have to have these things. We all have it deeply embedded in the recesses of our mind that we're going to go for these things in our life and that we're only living if we have it. And Jesus says, don't waste your zoe, your life on those on the pursuit of those things. Don't waste your zoe striving for bios. Don't do it. Storing up bios, literally in your bank accounts or figuratively in your hearts because ultimately bios spoils. Just like the manna in the desert which he talks about, it will rot. It's going to rot, it's going to rot you out. So don't pursue it. Do not And so in a phrase, in these three little words, Jesus says he challenges all of us who would dare follow him. If you are daring to follow him, it's a challenge to rethink your purpose for living. He's saying here, second Sunday of Advent, rethink it. What are you living for? You need to rethink it. Challenging us to to think about what's our meaning, what's giving us meaning in life, where we're deriving our value and our worth and our purpose, inviting us to ask this question, what is my bread today? what is my bread? What's my Zoe? What am I living for? Where am I deriving meaning? How would you answer that question today? What are you, ser- what are you searching for right now? Now hold, hold that question, okay? Because that's just the first question. <laughs> the second question relates to it, is where you find it. So what are, you, what are you looking for right now? And then Jesus moves us down the road. He says, you know, we need to seek bread... And he's challenging you to seek something radically other than maybe what you're seeking right now. From other sources, other places. And so then he says, this is where the bread comes from. Do you want the real bread? The Zoe? This is where it comes from. I am the bread of life. He or she who comes to me will never go hungry. Okay? So do you hear it? He answers the question right there. The zoe of relationship comes from him. Now, if it was kind of opaque there, he, he actually, earlier in, this, in the passage, puts it a little simpler. He says, very, verses 32, 33, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread of heaven. That's manna stuff you were eating? It was nothing. It was just this. Uh, my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying Christianity is not fundamentally a new religion. It's not. Christianity is not a religion at all. Uh, So references to manna and Moses, whenever you see those in the New Testament, are subtle references to Judaism, to religion, to rules, regulations, observance, rituals, okay? Just that's the shorthand of it. And Christianity is not that Fundamentally not that. And do you know why? Because Christianity is, a, is about a person and a relationship with a person. And that's all it's about. It's not a set of ideas. It's not a set of ideals. It's not even a so-called way. The early Christians called their movement the way. And I would say they weren't quite right. It, Jesus is not inviting us ultimately to follow his way of life, to copy his life, though Paul talks about that, and that's fine if you're doing it, but that's not fundamentally what Jesus was inviting us to do. That's religion. He was inviting us into relationship, and there's a big difference. Uh, See, a person isn't something that just you copy. A person is somebody you spend time with, you relate to, you get to know, you're intimate with. There's a person, not a path, that we're being invited to. A person who's not only the substance of Christianity, uh, but also our source of living, is what Jesus is saying. So, Jesus is the bread of life. That's what he's saying. He's for, hes what we've been created for. Uh, Dick Lucas—I've shared this before. He was a—he's a retired Anglican priest. I think he's like ninety something now, and he's British. So I love British Anglican priests. They, I love listening to them. So. He said, if you really want to understand what Jesus is, the radical nature of Christianity and all that Jesus is inviting us into, you kind of have to imagine like a first century dialogue between an early Christian and then like his pagan or non-Christian neighbor, okay? So imaginary dialogue, and I've shared this before, but I think it really fits. The Roman, the pagan, comes up to the Christian and says, hey, I hear you have a new religion. Uh, that's interesting. So where's your temple? Like, where's your sanctuary? And the Christian says, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. Uh, We don't have a sanctuary. We find sanctuary in Jesus. So then the pagan doesn't know what to do with this. He says to the Christian, well, where do your priests do their work? You have priests, right? Where do they do their work? Where do they prepare their sermons? Where do they hear confessions? You know what the Christian says? We don't need priests. Jesus is our great high priest. We don't need him anymore. You don't need me. Uh, and the pagan sputters like, no priest. Like, well, where do you do your sacrifices? Like, where do you do your offerings? Where do you do what you need to do so that God will accept you? And the, the Christian very tenderly replies, because it's clear that this pagan's not getting it. And he says, you know, um, in Christ, we've learned once and for all that we are already accepted. That there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. That we are beloved. (laughs) And so the pagan says, what kind of religion is this? And you know the punchline. It's no religion. Christianity is the end of religion. The end of it. If you've been approaching it as a religious thing, Jesus is saying today is the end of that journey and the beginning of life. Uh, He's the end of it. He didn't come to give us that. He came to give us relationship. He's the bread of life. Christianity is a person revealed to us in a manger. And not just any person, by the way. He's a broken person. Listen to this. Verse 51, This bread, my life, is my flesh, which I give to you for the life of the world. And right there, Jesus is pointing toward the cross. He's, this meal, which we're going to commemorate today, it's centered around the bread and the cup. It symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus. And it's no small deal. It's his suffering. It's his agony. It's his betrayal. It's his loneliness. It's all those things wrapped up in a cup and a plate. Um, it's the death he died. And see, there's a lot of people, and I've been included in this boat that think of Jesus as a moral teacher. We look at the foot washing, we go, man, servant leadership. I love that. Or we hear his teachings, the blessed ours, the, you know, Matthew 5. Or even here, the miracles. This was, John 6 was based around a huge miracle, feeding of 5,000 people, walking on water. Read that. (laughs) The disciples are like, we want more of that. We love the miracles. Do some more. Or the love your neighbor yeah, we're like, Jesus, sign me up for your movement. Wow, I want in. I'm in. We'd have the bumper stickers, right? I'm with him. <laughs> That's what we'd have. And I'll just say, when if, if we see Jesus that way or only that way, it's not wrong to see him that way. But if we see Jesus through those eyes only, we have failed to see Jesus for who he is. You have failed. And I'm just going to speak very personally here. When I see Jesus living a flawless life, a perfect and beautiful life, that does not encourage me. Uh, I'm a broken man. I come to you with, if you know my story, it's not a perfect story by any stretch, and I'm I'm talking real time. Addiction, abuse, failed relationships, anger, arrogance, deep doubt to the point of depression, and I could just go on and on and on. And here's your pastor. Welcome to Bethany Northeast if you're new here. It does not encourage me to see Jesus as a perfect human being, an example of how to go live my life. I can never live like him. I will never. I will fail every day of the week, multiple times of the day. If he's only a teacher, I'm getting a straight F. Okay. Uh, if he's only an example, I am the I'm the densest person in the world. I cannot follow his example. He condemns me. Following his example. Um, his standards condemn me. He discourages me. I'm just going to be honest. I'm discouraged by Jesus sometimes. Uh, but if you look at, the, if you take an honest look at the bookends of Jesus' life, so come to Christmas, he first came as a child. And not just any child. We love the, ch- the, the pictures of the child, Jesus, in the little swaddling clothes, the nine-pound baby Jesus like on that movie, Talladega Nights. We love that kind of Jesus but Jesus as a child was, that was awesome. Very vulnerable, very weak, very homeless, uh, born out of wedlock, became a refugee soon after his birth. That's a broken story. move on and look at his friendships. They are messed up. His family, dysfunctional. Look at the end of his life. Look at the prophecies of his death. Isaiah, despised, rejected, man of suffering, familiar with pain, a man whom people look down on. They don't look up to him. He was not looked up to. He was a forgotten footnote in the history of Judaism. Nobody knows about him. He's a scandal, not a savior. That's how the Jews looked at him. If you take a look at his life, his whole life, I'm not talking about just this John 6 stuff, not just the miracles, but all of his life, And then take a piece of that bread. If it's not broken today, if you don't come here and tear a piece off, it will not help you. It cannot help you. You cannot look at that bread, smell that bread. I'll just go a little further. Lick the bread. You can't do it. Don't do that. (laughs) You might spread butter and jam all over it, but if you do not break it and eat it, it will not nourish you. If it does not get inside of you as a broken piece and get down into your intestines and begin to get broken up some more and move through your veins and get broken down into something so finite and minuscule you can't even perceive it, if that's not the bread that goes into you, it will not help you. And this is a huge encouragement to me as a broken person because what he's doing here is he's giving us an unambiguous way to seek him, to find the bread of life. You want to know where to go? Go in your brokenness. That's what Jesus is saying. And not, not, not only in your brokenness, in the brokenness of Jesus. Like I've just said, observe his story. Meditate on his story. Let that story get inside your heart and melt it down. That's number one. But then look at your own brokenness, whatever that might be, as a means of blessing, not a curse. Brokenness is not a part of the curse. It's a part of the blessing. That's the story of the gospel. You know, I've shared some of my brokenness with you in footnotes, but where, where are you broken today? You come to church on Sunday and your marriage is off the rails. You, your sexuality is in question. Um, your addictions, they are just flaring right now. We all have them, some are more culturally acceptable than others. Uh, you've failed. You've lost someone. You, you know, we are broken people. Where, where, what is broken in your life? See, whatever is broken or being broken or has been broken, Jesus is inviting you to see it as a means of blessing. We're constantly being blessed in our brokenness by Jesus. Uh, this guy, Nicholas Waltersdorf, he's a philosopher at Yale University, and he wrote this little book. If you are broken and you want a resource best book I've ever read. Lament for a son. It doesn't, it's not a how to guide. This guy lost his son in a mountaineering accident when his son was 33. His son was in Europe climbing, fell off, died. He got the proverbial call at 3:30 in the morning. Well, actually a literal call and just sent him down, down deep because his son was like my son, Elliot, he's like his best friend. And so he wrote this book and here's what he says about his journey. He says this. Uh, it is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend has just said to me, perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. That's a great mystery, Moltresdorf says. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us, through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. And here's the punchline. God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. You hear that? God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers the pain and the fallenness of our humanity have entered into his heart in Christ and through the prism of our tears, he says, we can see God. Where are you broken right now? If you are, and you can just look through those two eyes at Jesus, you are beginning to apprehend the bread of life, to take it in and make it yours. You're coming alive, actually. I know that's totally countercultural, counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense, but that's the gospel. Which means that if you come to him today and you're saying, I'm hurting, make me feel better, you're coming with the wrong thing. If you come today and you're saying, Lord, I'm sad, make me happy, you're saying the wrong thing. If you're coming saying, God, I'm afraid of failure, help me succeed, wrong. We must learn to say out loud, on a regular basis, as a declaration of faith, I cannot live the life for which I've been created. I'm hurting, I'm sad, I'm failing. I know it, the world knows it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, God. You've brought me to this point. Befriend your brokenness. That's John 6. Be blessed in your brokenness. That's John 6. As John Calvin once said, one of the great reformers, <laughs> failure makes us fit to receive the grace of God. If you're a failure, you're fit to receive it. Come to the table. So might we just come saying thank you for such a wonderful means of grace. So wonderful. Uh, And then God, help me to know what it looks like to do that more and more in my life with courage, not fear. Might we learn to say that this Christmas, okay? Okay. So that's the second question, which leads to the third and final. And this will be really short, so we can come here. If you're on board, and if you have a broken life, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I know that would be a wild, vulnerable move. But if the broken life of Christ coming into union with your broken life not only challenges you but excites you. It excites me. Uh, if you pray this prayer, Paul prays, that I pray all the time, that you want to know the power of Christ's resurrection, this is Philippians 3, by the, by, by the means of his suffering, coming into, under, like, union with his suffering, if that excites you and stirs your heart, the how question is this, or the answer to the how question is this. See, the disciples, verse 34, they say, they say this, Sir, I love that they call him Sir, as if that's going to get something from Jesus, always give us this bread. We want it. It doesn't make sense though. And Jesus responds this way, real simply, again, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. It's so simple. We miss it. It's so simple. This is the simplest, simplest thing. If you take nothing away today, take this, take it all day, every day. Okay. He couldn't have put it more simple. The way in which we receive the bread of life is held in one word. One word, come. Come to me, Jesus says. That's how you receive the bread. Come to Jesus. We're, we're invited to play on a pun, to be comers. <laughs> That's what he says. Come to me. There's no simpler way to describe the responsibility, or I should say the privilege that we have in apprehending the life of Christ. Just come. That's the simplest prayer. Come. You don't need to fill up, the room with your words. Just come. Just show up. The deepest imagined intimacy, my friend Sean in the front row here has been talking to my our men's group about this, is just showing up. Sometimes at three in the morning. I'm not saying you have to do that. Sean's a unique guy. <laughs> just show up, though. Just come. Obedience to revelation. You know, You read the word, you don't know how to obey it. Just show up. Let Jesus guide your steps. That's what he says. And by the way, this coming isn't a once and done. It's not like come, one day, one moment, and that's it. It's an ever and ongoing process. You see, in his response, we miss this. Jesus uses a unique form of invitation here, very unique. This tense of come in the Greek language doesn't show up in the English. It's lost. It's the present tense participle. So here's your last Greek lesson of the day. He uses a present tense participle here. Which literally translated has Jesus saying, Whoever continually, always and repeatedly comes will never go hungry. That's a mouthful. Whoever continually, always and repeatedly comes, will never go hungry. What it means is if you're if what it means to be a Christian is to be in a constant process of coming to Jesus. Constant. So how do you do that? (laughs) Isn't it fascinating as you read this story? that Jesus gives you no concrete action steps. Nothing. No particulars. He just says, come to me. That's it. He leaves all the particulars, all the various how-tos, the books, to to you. He leaves it up to you. I love that. He he leaves it up to us. He simply invites us to be comers. That's it. It's so simple. It's so awesome. (laughs) I mean, just... Come, and you're going to experience meaning and joy and satisfaction. So how do we get the bread of life? Are you coming to Jesus? Jesus says, come. And then he says, come again. And then he says, come again. He says, take a step and take another step and take another step and keep coming. You'll experience life. So might we be comers this Christmas? That's my invitation to us as a community because that's what it means to receive the bread of life. We're going to receive here in a moment. I want to pray. I'll invite our worship team forward. Jesus, we thank you uh, for such a simple and yet astounding invitation. We thank you that you don't invite us to religion. For many of us, God, that has worn us down and worn us out. We came here this morning feeling that way. Thank you, God, that you invite us into relationship. Thank you that you invite us into relationship with a broken man. And not just any old broken man, but this man who, of sorrows, brings healing to us in our own brokenness. So, God, as we come today to this table before us, would we be comers in the the way that Jesus was, bringing our brokenness to his. And in that great exchange, God, experience grace. Thank you, God. I pray in Christ's name.